0: Take your Bible and turn with me. We're going to look for just a minute in John chapter 20. John chapter 20. And by the way, it is good to hear your children in here this morning. Thank you for bringing them. While you're turning there, pray with me. Father, you are our hope. And we thank you for the living hope that we have in Christ Jesus this morning. Lord Jesus, you told us there in the first of Revelation that you are the first and the last. You are the living one. And we thank you for that today. And we thank you for your living word. And we pray that as we look at it for a few minutes this morning, Lord, that you will indeed just do a work in the hearts of each one of us that's here. And I pray that in Christ's name. Amen. Back in 1822, we talk a lot about our country being founded on Christian principles and those kinds of things. And and that, for the most part, is true. Although many of those forefathers of ours there who signed our Declaration of Independence, would we would not consider some of them to be evangelical Christians, according to our understanding of what that is. One of those, for instance, is Thomas Jefferson. In 1822, Thomas Jefferson wrote a letter to a good friend of his, a doctor named Benjamin Waterhouse. And he expressed his confidence in that letter to Dr. Waterhouse that Christianity, as he understood it, was on its way out. And what was coming in was a more enlightened faith. Here's what he wrote to his doctor friend. I trust that there is not a young man now living in the U.S. who will not die a Unitarian. By that he means like Unitarian Universalist. You see, Thomas Jefferson's Testimony and his own Bible, which he cut and pasted together, taking out all of the supernatural miracles, taking out many of the references to the deity of Christ and to the Trinity. He had his own edited personal version of the Bible that he had cut down and pasted to fit his faith. And you see, Thomas Jefferson did not believe in the Trinity. He did not believe in the divinity of Christ. He rejected biblical miracles. He rejected the atonement. He rejected sin. He could not believe in a God who would fault or condemn humanity for sin. He called it a gross injustice. And he rejected the resurrection. He calls that an enlightened faith. And that would be a popular faith today. In fact, it is. Now, here's the problem with that form of Christianity. And Tim Keller says it best in his classic book, The Reason for God. Tim Keller says, if Jesus rose from the dead, you have to accept everything he said. If he didn't rise from the dead, then why worry about anything that he said? If Jesus rose from the dead, that changes everything. My purpose here today, our purpose in this worship service and singing and praising and preaching and in the sunrise service, the testimonies that you heard, the visible testimonies you saw in the testimonies in the in the baptism, the purpose behind those is not to convince you that Jesus is raised from the dead. It is to proclaim that truth. It is to, pro- to proclaim it. We will not and cannot convince you of that ourselves. That is the work of God, and He does that. He does that through the confirmation that we have over and over and over. What we have is the declaration of Scripture itself and of eyewitnesses. We have historical resurrection proof. We have the proof of changed lives throughout church history, and we have a room full of changed lives right here this morning that are proof in the resurrection of Jesus. My point is not to convince you That Jesus is alive, but to declare it and to declare this, that that is the most important truth. That is the most important truth you will ever hear, and it forces you to make a decision today. It forces you to make a decision today, and that truth changes everything. And to see that, I want us to look at just part of what we see in John's gospel in John chapter 20. Now, the resurrection account is obviously in all of the Gospels. It's the message of the early church. From the resurrection on, that is the message. We are meeting today in recognition of the resurrection on this Lord's Day. Every Sunday is a celebration of the resurrection. That's why the church meets on this day and not the traditional Jewish Sabbath. We are here to celebrate and proclaim the resurrection of Jesus. And we do that every Sunday. And so as the church proclaimed that resurrection, starting in chapter 20, we have John's account of that. First day of the week, Mary Magdalene comes to the tomb. I'm not going to read all of that. Then Mary, then Jesus goes and appears to Mary Magdalene. I would like to pick up the account though, starting there later on in that verse, later on in that passage, starting in verse 19. And on the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked, Where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. And then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even I, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold the forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. And he said to them, Unless I see his hands, see in his hands the mark of the nails, and place my finger into the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. The resurrection changes everything. We have sung several times this morning in some verses of these songs about the fact that the resurrection overcomes that great enemy of ours called fear. And because of the resurrection, lives are changed. Lives are changed from those who are in fear because of the resurrection. And that's the picture that we see here of these disciples. They are behind closed doors, the text makes clear, for fear of the Jews. They are afraid of what the world could do to them because they have seen the worst of what the world can do as it's been poured out on Jesus, right? They've seen the worst of what the world can do. They're behind closed doors and they're afraid because of what the world might say. Accusations, insinuations, based on association, on relationship. Peter understood this because he had been confronted with it in the courtyard by that little girl, by that servant girl. Accusations were made because associations existed, and they were afraid of that, what the world could say. They were also afraid of what the world might think. In Matthew's account of the resurrection, the Jews, being so afraid of a resurrection and what would entail, put a guard over the tomb, sealed the tomb, And when the tomb was empty, created the story that his body had been stolen. The disciples were surely aware of this and afraid of what the world might think. Had we taken the body? Were we part of a scam? Part of a scandal? They're afraid because of those things. They're afraid because of what the world might see. And what the world would see in them at this moment is a bunch of scared, confused, discouraged, disoriented men. They're also afraid of what the world, how the, how the world would respond to all of these things. And I think the disciples are also afraid of what they don't understand. Jesus had told them time and time again he would raise, be raised from the dead. But they didn't get it. And they didn't believe. And I think they're afraid of what they don't understand. What does grief do to us? Man, it knocks our feet out from under us, doesn't it? It knocks our whole foundation out from under us. We can be confused about things we thought we were certain about. We can be afraid of things that may not even exist. But grief can tear the foundation out from underneath our lives. They were afraid. And in contrast to them being afraid behind closed doors, John makes it clear that Jesus came and stood among them. It tells us that twice. Here, eight days later, in the presence of Thomas, he comes in through these closed doors and stands among them. And his first words to them are, Peace be with you. No closed doors can stop the presence of Jesus in his resurrected body, nor can they today through his Holy Spirit. Now, I believe that resurrection body of Jesus is the model of what ours will be one day. It's physical. You can see it. It's physical. You can touch it. It's physical. He ate in their presence. But yet... It's not restricted in the same way that our physical body is. So that closed door does not stop Jesus from coming into their presence. That closed door does not stop Him from speaking His peace and bringing His blessing upon them. In this same room, just a few days earlier, one of the last things that they had heard from Jesus as they were in that upper room before He went to the cross was, "...I have said these things to you that in Me you may have peace." In this world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. One of the last things they heard in that upper room a few days before was Jesus speaking peace. And now the first thing they hear in that same upper room now, post-resurrection, is Jesus coming and speaking His peace. And He speaks His peace to men whom He knows their fears, He knows their doubts, He knows their failures, He knows their discouragement. He doesn't have to be told about it. And He comes and speaks His peace to that. You know, what we see fulfilled over and over and over in the New Testament is these Old Testament promises about Jesus. Remember, Isaiah said He would be the Prince of what? The Prince of Peace. And so here the Prince of Peace comes through these closed doors into these discouraged, disappointed Scared men's lives. And fulfills the promise that he made in John 14. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. Not as the world gives do I give you. It's his peace that he gives. Don't let your hearts be troubled, he said. Neither let them be afraid. The resurrection changes the lives of those living in fear. Many of us can testify to that. I don't know that I can convince you of that. In fact, I know I can't. But I know that Spirit of God can take the Word of God and speak that into your heart this morning. And there are a hundred plus people in this room who could testify that the resurrected Jesus has been the answer to my fear. Second thing you see here is the resurrection changes the lives of those living in doubt. Thomas, bless his heart, often gets... We call him Doubting Thomas. But I want us to see this maybe in a different light, maybe in a little different perspective. It tells us that Thomas was one of the twelve, called the twin... In verse 24, and he had not been with those disciples on that night, but here he is with them now. Here he is together with those other disciples. Now we don't know much about Thomas, but doubting is not the first word that will come to mind when we see some of the other gospel passages that give us some insight into this man's character. One of the first things that we see from Thomas is in John chapter 11, where his where he and the other disciples are watching Jesus seemingly not respond to the call from Lazarus' family that the one whom you love is sick. And Jesus delays and doesn't go. And then he makes the decision to go, and they're all skeptical about the wisdom in that because they know the enemies that await Christ as he goes to this place. Thomas is the one who speaks up and says, Let us go also that we may die with him. So Thomas, knowing what faces them and understanding the consequences and the possibility of the danger, is the one who seems to spur the other disciples on. He's not afraid to step out and come with Christ. He's not afraid to ask Jesus questions when the others all have the same questions. We've been in meetings like that, right? Does anybody have any questions? And you just look around and go, I don't have a clue what this guy's just talking about. I'd really like to know this. And nobody wants to ask a question. Well, the disciples were all like that. And so Jesus in John chapter 14 is talking to them, and he's talking about going away. He's talking about that they know where he's going, and they know the way themselves, and they're going, we don't have a clue what he's talking about. Thomas is the one who speaks up and asks the question. Thomas says, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? Do you remember Jesus' answer? I am the way, the truth, and the life. It's in answer to Thomas's direct question that Jesus gives that most wonderful statement. So Thomas was deeply committed to Christ. And now, that whole foundation seems to have been shaken and torn away. You see, Thomas's world is shattered. He knows what he's seen. He has seen Jesus raise the dead. He has seen Jesus heal. He has seen Jesus feed 5,000. He's seen Jesus walk on the water. He's heard Jesus' teaching. His whole life was built upon the fact that Jesus is the Messiah. And now this man is dead. He has no frame of reference for that. No frame of reference for a crucified Messiah. No frame of reference for a wrecked Redeemer. None of that is in his frame of reference. And so he's broken hearted. He's discouraged. He's afraid. His dreams have been crushed. And there's all kinds of emotions going on with Thomas. And one of the reasons I believe Thomas was not with the disciples in that first meeting is for the same reason that you and I, when we are afraid and discouraged and in despair, retreat into ourselves and stay away from the very people, the very place, and the very message that could give us hope and confidence. We back away. When we should be pressing in. And Thomas is a picture of this. And Jesus reminds us that we cannot back away so far that He will not come to us. The resurrected Savior will come to us. Now doubt can come upon us for many reasons. I think we see some of those here. Sometimes we just don't have enough information, so we doubt. Right? Sometimes we don't, we don't believe or make, make that confident decision that we should. Just out of a choice, I just choose not to believe. I just choose to doubt. Sometimes that choice is not a one-time choice that leads to doubt. It's a series of choices. Let me give you an example, for instance. You choose to not spend any time in the Word for one day, and then the next day, and then the next day. You're not really praying as you should. You make that choice. Then you make the choice not to be with God's people at those appointed times where we come together to meet and encourage and praise and worship. You make that choice. And then you make that choice, because you've not been doing those other things, to hang out with people that you probably know you shouldn't hang out, doing things that you know probably are unwise, but you make that choice anyway. And then you make the choice, well, I'm going to go ahead and have a conversation with this woman or this man, knowing that that's not the best thing I need to do, and that leads to something else, which leads to something else. And before you know it, you've made so many small choices leading in this direction, that you know what, I just, I'm just not sure I believe that stuff anymore. So that series of choices can lead to doubt. Sometimes we doubt because we're just tired and depressed. We need some sleep. There's a connection between our physical well-being and our spiritual well-being. And sometimes we go through a genuine, life-shaking, foundation-crushing event, and Thomas did that. I love what D.A. Carson says about Thomas's doubt. Listen, he says, Thomas' doubt is the skepticism of one who has gone through a stupendous religious disappointment, such as he doesn't want to be blindsided again. (laughs) He goes on, Thomas's doubt was the sort of doubt that wanted to distinguish between genuine faith and mere gullibility. The doubt that has been through such a profound religious disillusionment and does not want to be snookered again. You see, Thomas said, I believed, I trusted, and I staked my life on it. And that all seems to have disappeared. And so he needs some evidence. He needs some proof. And Jesus knows what Thomas's needs are. He knows what Thomas needs, and he comes giving that. Look, it sounds just like the last meeting in that upper room. Jesus came through doors that are locked... And he stands among them. Jesus knows Thomas's heart. He knows his feelings. He knows his mindset. He knows what Thomas needs. And the first thing that Thomas needs is the assurance of peace. Peace in his heart that is wrecked by the storms of doubt and despair. Peace in his relationship with Jesus which seems to have been dissolved. And Jesus comes speaking peace. And the word shalom there, yes, it's a customary Jewish greeting, but it also speaks of what we have with God through Christ because of the cross and the resurrection. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, Paul tells us in Romans 5. So Jesus comes speaking not just a temporal, but an eternal blessing, peace. And He comes offering to Thomas the proof that he needs. You see, Thomas... I believe Thomas saw the crucifixion. Maybe he's seen them before. He knows about the wombs in his hands. He knows about the wombs in his feet. Unique to Jesus' crucifixion is that spear point into his side. And Thomas is thinking, this man who comes and stands before me, I will believe if I see the same wombs in the same place... And I can touch them. I want to be sure that the Jesus that I believed in before is the Jesus I saw hanging on the cross and is the Jesus I see standing in front of me. He wants specific proof about his specific Savior. And Jesus comes and offers him that. And what a stunning confession it is that he makes. My Lord and my God. This is what's so cool about John's Gospel. It's what's cool about all of Scripture. I was, I was Friday night, this past Friday night, we had a kind of a good Friday service up at Caswell Prison Unit in Yanceville. Man, what a joy it was to be with those brothers again and just to kind of walk through the last words of Christ from the cross and to go word by word from His forgiveness, His care for His mother, His thirsting, all of these things and go back to the Old Testament and say, this is what the prophet said would happen is this is what happened on the cross. One brother came up to me after the service and he was just overwhelmed with joy. I found this passage in Zechariah that talked about the thirst. And he was making that connection. Thomas is making those connections now. As Jesus stands before him and he says, My Lord and my God. In the beginning of John's Gospel, John says, In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now in the end of John's Gospel, My Lord and my God. Thomas was with Jesus. When he, Jesus earlier in John in chapter 5 said, The, ta- the Father is working. And I am working, I am, ego a me, that same term that was used of God's personal name in the book of Exodus that Jesus used for himself. He was with Jesus when Jesus said, I am the bread of life, and fed 5,000 people. Thomas was with Jesus when he said, I am the light of the world. He was with him when he said, before Abraham was, I am. He was with Jesus when he said, I am the door. I am the Good Shepherd. He was with Jesus when He said, I am the resurrection and the life. He was with Jesus when Jesus said, You call Me Teacher and Lord, and You are right, for so I am. He'd heard all that, and now He sees it, and He believes it. And it's all confirmed for him. But the most amazing thing about this claim, and what may be most relevant to some of you this morning, really to all of us in one way or another, is that one little word, my. You say you can say this morning, I believe that Jesus is God. I believe that Jesus is Lord. And in some ways, you will have the same confession That Satan and all of his demons have. Because James says even the demons believe that much. The difference is that personal appropriation. That he is not just Lord, he is my Lord. He is my King. And what we see here is Thomas making this profound personal declaration of faith. He is making Jesus His own in a personal, life-changing confession that any one of us can and should make. My Lord and my God. And apart from this confession, apart from the confession that you didn't hear it in the testimonies this morning, we didn't hear the verbal testimonies from the students out at the lake. Hensley said it best. I've heard John 3.16. She said my whole life. But then one day, I see me in that. That God so loved me that He gave His only begotten Son. That if I would believe in Him, I would not perish but have everlasting life. The testimony of those who make Jesus their own. Jesus is Lord and King. One day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that, Paul tells us. He is King of kings and Lord of lords. Your eternity hangs in the balance on whether or not you have claimed him and professed him as your own. My Lord and my God. Apart from this confession, you have no part in Christ and no part in the salvation he offers. Which leads me to a final point. The resurrection changes the lives of those who have made Jesus their king. Over in Acts chapter 2, at the Pentecost sermon that Peter preached, he said this, This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. By the way, sometimes, and I won't take the time to unpack this this morning but many times some would take that claim that Jesus said there blessed are you Thomas before you but you believe because you've seen Thomas blessed are those who believe and have not seen and in some way we want to make the faith of new testament believers today greater than the faith of Thomas because we believe and don't see that's not the point of what Jesus is making we do see and we're called to belief we do see that Jesus is alive from the biblical record. We do see that Jesus is alive. From the words of those eyewitnesses. We do see that Jesus is alive. From the claims and the changed lives throughout church history. And the claims and the changed lives of those who follow him today. We do see and believe. And so this foundational truth that those who make Jesus their king have their lives changed. Is what Peter says there. God raised him up, of this we are all witnesses. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ. The foundational truth of Christianity is that God is the creator of all things, king of kings, ruler of all things. John summarizes this well in Revelation 4. Worthy are you, O Lord our God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they exist and were created. God is the creator of all things, including you and me. And He created you and me to bear His image and give Him glory. He created Adam and Eve to bear His image and give Him glory. As they governed and ruled in that garden and over the world that they were called to have dominion over, under His lordship and guidance for His glory. God is the King. The problem is that we... Don't want another king or another boss. We want to be our own boss and our own ruler. Adam and Eve set the pattern for this and we are all guilty of it. And the Bible calls this sin. And we have all transgressed that kingship and lordship of God. We have all sinned and fallen short of his glory. The prophet Isaiah says that we're all like sheep. We have turned away every one of us and gone his own way. And if we are not outrightly rebelling and disobeying Him, then we are ignoring Him and going our own direction. The thing of this is that God is a just judge. He is holy. And He cares enough to take our rebellion seriously. And as He spoke that judgment on Adam and Eve in the garden and that separation from God and from each other, in His holiness and righteousness, God just cannot say, oh, it's okay. God's judgment results in suffering and death here and eternal separation from Him. So we need to understand this. The resurrection of Jesus confirms what we see throughout the Scriptures. And listen, what I've seen, and many of you have, as you sit at the bedside of someone about to take their last breath, death is not natural to us. Have you ever watched a body? The mind is gone. Nothing's there in so many ways, and that heart will not stop beating because it was not made to stop beating. Death is not natural, and as we remember that, that's the judgment upon our sin, the judgment upon a broken, on a, on a broken and sinful world, and the the world is groaning, Paul says, crying out for redemption. So God is holy and just. And he, he goes to great lengths to demonstrate this for us. But He goes to great lengths to free us from the condemnation and punishment we deserve because of that sin. God loved us so much that He gave His Son to take upon Himself the punishment that we deserve. As all four of our students sat out at the lake this morning. Jesus did this. He was sinless. He was perfect. He fulfilled the righteous requirement of God in his life of perfection. And he died a substitutionary death on our behalf. God loved us that much. Yeah, Isaiah said, all we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. The next part of that verse says, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Praise God for that grace. Praise God for that grace. Jesus' was. Jesus' offering on the cross was accepted as payment for our sins. And God's resurrection of him was proof positive that Jesus is who he said he is, that he did what the Bible says he did, and that he was raised and will come again. His sacrifice was sufficient. So that leaves you and me and all of us with a choice. He was raised up, champion over death, champion over sin, conquering over satan he will be humanity's king and judge again one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess this and he is the only savior who can rescue you from this judgment so on this resurrection sunday the resurrected savior comes to free you from your fear to free you from your doubt to free you from your guilt and to give you life Turn, repent, trust in Christ. Trust in Jesus today. Say, Lord, I acknowledge what Your Word says about You and about me. And I do like being my own boss. And I have followed that course that the world would set for me. And I've rebelled against the direction You have for my life. And I want to confess that I need Jesus as my Lord and Savior. I need your forgiveness. Come and forgive me and give me life in Christ. You have that choice today. John 3.36 says, "He whoever, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Let's pray. Father, we bless you and thank you today. Oh, what a joy it is to sing praises to our risen Savior. What a joy it is to celebrate the goodness and the grace that you've given us in Christ. God, it is good that we are reminded of the consequence of sin. It's good that we're reminded of the suffering of Jesus on the cross. It's good that we're reminded, oh God, of the reality that Jesus came back from the grave and is standing in the midst even today through his Holy Spirit to offer life and forgiveness Freedom from fear and guilt and despair. And so, Father, I pray that the eyes of our hearts would be opened. That Your saints, Lord, would celebrate and rejoice in the salvation we have in Jesus. And that some today, Father, would surrender their life to Christ. And I pray that in His name.